Welcome to the September Dermalogic Surgery Journal podcast. I'm the podcast editor, Naomi Lawrence. This month's journal was remarkable for several well-done reviews. There is an excellent practical guide for the Mohs surgeon on complex eyelid reconstruction. There is a fascinating compilation of the off-label dermalogic uses for polydocanol. Finally, there is a literature-based evaluation of the myths and realities in regards to sclerotherapy. Thank you for listening and have a happy surgery day. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, role of surgery after remission of non-systemic extensive periorbital basal cell carcinoma treated by bismotigib, a systematic review. First author, Delphine Payet, senior author, Natalie Pham-Dang. For a minority of patients with periocular basal cell, extensive disease progression or recurrence of tumor contraindicate surgery because of severe ocular morbidity. Vismotigib is an important treatment in these clinical scenarios. The aim of the review was to define the role of surgery after vismotigib treatment for advanced periocular basal cell in terms of mapping, excision of residual tumor, or correction of eyelid sclerosis or functional eye issues. Authors performed a search of PubMed, Cochrane Library, Science Direct, and Embase to identify studies that examine the treatment of basal cell of the eyelid with vismotigib, which describe the primary outcome variable, which is the need for eyelid reconstruction after treatment. As expected, level one evidence was found for the use of vismotigib as neoadjuvant therapy in locally advanced eyelid basal cell contraindicated to surgery. Level three evidence was found for the role of surgical excision of residual clinically suspicious lesions and eyelid reconstruction after tumor mapping or Mohs resection of persistent tumor. For medically treated patients, surgery was originally contraindicated in 40% of cases because of morbidities and in 60% of cases for the need for enteration. Interestingly, no study analyzed as main or secondary objective the functional eyelid issues after treatment by vismotigib. The specific case included by the authors nicely highlights a basal cell involving the upper and lower eyelids clinically cured by vismotigib, which can be seen in the included photo, with ocular sequelae involving extensive exposure of the globe. Overall, the authors found a significant clinical complete response in 30%, excuse me, 37% of the 384 studied patients after a mean duration of vismotigib treatment of 37 weeks. For 224 patients treated only with vismotigib, 49% had a complete response. The rate of complete response was upgraded by 6% when vismotigib was also associated with surgery and by 1% with the combination of vismotigib, surgery, and radiotherapy. In four cases, authors reported large tumor resorption without ocular sequelae. In four publications, ocular sequelae included palpebral retraction, scleral exposure, and red eye. Four articles reported a total of nine cases of reconstruction to protect the eyeball, and no studies mentioned a sequelae of healing impairment due to vismotigib treatment. Overall, vismotigib is a well-tolerated treatment for advanced periorbital basal cell, and combination therapy with surgery and or radiotherapy may increase complete response rates 
What this review does really is highlight that the literature does not well characterize the role of adjuvant surgery after hedgehog inhibitor treatment in these cases. There is a risk of eyelid complications from this medical treatment alone, possibly requiring adjuvant surgical intervention, and no guidelines have been established concerning the time interval between vismotage therapy and surgery. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the original article, Risk Factors for Canalicular Injury After Mohs Micrographic Surgery, by authors Elliot Campbell and Lily Wagner. The article starts with background on canalicular injury, abbreviated as CI, after periocular Mohs surgery. CI can be associated with morbidity if not repaired by an oculoplastic surgeon, such as permanently increased tearing. Prior studies have found that 5 to 10% of periocular Mohs cases require canalicular reconstruction. The authors review the anatomy of the lacrimal system, which includes the lacrimal gland and ducts, and the common canaliculus that is formed by inferior and superior canaliculi, and ends at the lacrimal sac. This study is a case control study that compared patients with CI after Mohs with subjects that required ophthalmologic Mohs repair without CI to determine which factors are associated with canalicular injury. The analysis found that BCC was the most common tumor type to be associated with CI, and this was statistically significant, and these were more likely to be infiltrative, morpheiform, or micronodular. Interestingly, having an initial tumor location on the medial canthus was not significantly associated with CI in cases versus controls. However, having a final defect involving the medial canthus was statistically more likely to have CI. Having three or more Mohs stages approached significance as a risk factor. These findings are interesting because they show that initial tumor location in the medial canthus is not a strong predictor of CI after Mohs. Even though a final defect involving the medial canthus is significantly associated with CI, only 55% of CI cases had a final defect involving the medial canthus, meaning 45% did not. The authors explain this by the anatomy of the proximal lacrimal system. The inferior and superior canaliculi travel superficially about 8 millimeters along the nasal part of the lid margins. Thus, CI should still be considered during pre-op assessment for tumors involving the nasal eyelids. A limitation of this study, as mentioned by the authors, is that the exact designation of the medial canthus region is subjective. But overall, this study is very interesting in showing that surgeons cannot rely on preoperative tumor location when anticipating canalicular injury. This is Michael Renzi reviewing Complex Eyelid Reconstruction, a Practical Guide for the Mohs Surgeon by first author Shoshana Blumenthal and senior author Ian Marr. Given that 10% of all skin cancers occur on the periorbital skin, it is imperative that Mohs surgeons understand the function and anatomy of the eyelid and the repair options for a range of eyelid defects. In this review article, the authors provide a thorough overview of eyelid anatomy with an emphasis on form and function, as well as an algorithmic approach to defect analysis and appropriate selection repair. The anatomy portion of this article is quite detailed and figures one through three are helpful in depicting the structures of the eyelid. I recommend that the listeners read the article for an in-depth review of eyelid anatomy. For the purposes of this summary, though, I want to remind listeners of the definitions of anterior and posterior lamella. The anterior lamella is composed of skin and orbicularis oculi muscle, whereas the posterior lamella is composed of tarsal plate and the palpebral conjunctiva. 
When analyzing an eyelid defect, the authors advocate for reconstruction via the simplest means that satisfies functional and aesthetic goals. In addition to size and location, defect analysis should consider whether there's involvement of posterior lamella and whether any non-lid tissue must be replaced. Defects of the posterior lamella and its support structures, such as the tarsoligamentous sling, should be prioritized as intrinsic support issues can be exacerbated postoperatively by scar contracture. For anterior lamella defects, flaps and grafts are the workhorses. V-to-Y flaps have been described with good success by a number of groups and have been shown to be equivalent to the mastardi flap for ectropion prevention in the repair of moderately sized lid to cheek defects. Rotation flaps are most useful for lower lid defects and for inferiorly based rotations, tacking sutures to the inferior orbital rim must be used to prevent ectropion. Banner flaps can be used in select cases to direct tension away from the free margin, but are often poor texture and thickness match. Rhombic flaps provide an excellent option for canthal defects. With regard to grafts, oculoplastic series, and the authors of this article advocate for the supraclavicular area as the optimal donor site due to the thin skin and abundant reservoir. Although many cite the contralateral upper eyelid as a frequent donor site, these have a tendency towards graft contracture. Posterior lamella defects must be carefully reconstructed to avoid eyelid malposition. The surgeon must assess the extent of missing tarsus and involvement of the canthal tendon. When there is missing lateral support and linear closure is not an option, the authors attempt lateral canthotomy with cantholysis. If there's too much tension on the eyelid, a tenzel semicircular rotation flap is utilized. If too much tension remains after these steps, they favor a periosteal flap. For missing medial support, repair options are organized by extent of lid margin involvement. If less than 25 to 33% of the lid margin is missing, direct closure is usually possible. For defects 25 to, 30, 25 to 50%, lateral canthotomy with inferior cantholysis can provide additional advancement to allow for direct primary closure for most lower and upper lid defects. Tarsoconjunctival lateral canthylysis for full closure for closure of full thickness defects, and tarsal rearrangement flaps for upper lid defects are also options. For defects greater than 50% of the lid margin, the typical canthotomy design can be extended superlaterally to create a tensile semicircular rotation flap. When there is still too much tension on the eyelid after canthotomy with cantholysis and a tensile flap, periosteal flaps are an excellent option to reconstruct the conjunctival lining and provide support for large full thickness defects. Finally, for very large full thickness eyelid defects, lid sharing flaps or Hughes flaps can be used. Overall, I thought this was a great review of eyelid reconstruction options, and I encourage listeners to read the step-by-step -step descriptions of the various flaps and to watch the supplemental videos of the pentagonal wedge and the periosteal flap repair. This is Christy Regola reviewing perioperative practices in dermatologic surgery by first author Stephen Erickson, and senior author, Lauren Council. Most surgery is generally safe and well-tolerated. Various perioperative practices are employed with the aim of reducing adverse events. This survey study sought to assess perioperative practice patterns among dermatologic surgeons with regard to systemic antibiotic prophylaxis, anticoagulation, antiseptics, and activity restrictions. Two surveys were distributed by the American College of Mohs Surgery 
and the American Society for Most Surgery to their membership via email from May to July of 2021. 177 surgeons participated. 61% were members of the ACMS, 35% members of the ASMS, and 4% members of both organizations. Participants were dispersed geographically, practicing in 37 states. The majority of participants had been in clinical practice for over 20 years. However, other experienced groups were well represented. Concerning preoperative antibiotic prophylaxis. Preoperative antibiotics were routinely prescribed for mechanical prosthetic cardiac valves, 74%, biprosthetic cardiac valves, 51%, history of infective endocarditis, 67%, and history of large joint replacement, 63%. Regarding joint replacement, preoperative antibiotics were primarily prescribed within two years of the joint replacement, and they were administered one hour before surgery in the majority of respondents. For non-oral sites, the most common antibiotic was cephalexin, followed by amoxicillin and clindamycin. For oral sites, the most common antibiotic was amoxicillin, followed by cephalexin and clindamycin. And in penicillin-allergic patients, the most common antibiotic was clindamycin, followed by cephalexin, doxycycline, and azithromycin. Concerning anticoagulant and antiplatelet management, 30% of respondents hold preventative aspirin, 5% hold therapeutic aspirin, and 5% hold other antiplatelet agents. Less than 5% of respondents hold anticoagulants like Coumadin. 25% of respondents hold NSAIDs, and of the respondents who hold supplements, the most common were vitamin E and fish oil to be commonly held. The majority of respondents obtain a preoperative INR either always, 32%, or sometimes, 24%. However, a large proportion never check an INR, 44%. If an INR is obtained, the majority find an INR of less than three to be acceptable. Concerning preoperative antiseptics, the majority of respondents primarily use chlorhexidine to clean surgical sites. For the periocular area and ear, iodine is typically used. Concerning activity restrictions, the majority of respondents recommend that patients avoid strenuous activities such as exercise, heavy lifting, frequent bending over, and the like for 7 or 14 days postoperatively. A large proportion of respondents, however, only restrict activity for one to three days. Overall, perioperative practices vary between dermatologic surgeons and in some cases do not align with standard guidelines. Greater standardization may help to optimize surgical outcomes. This is Ashley Decker and I'm reviewing the Reconstructive Conundrum Repair of a Large Cheek Defect by first author Dr. Caitlin Shee and senior author Dr. Christine Weinberger. The authors present a case of a 62-year-old woman with an amelanotic melanoma in situ on the left cheek cleared with Mohs resulting in a 6 by 5 centimeter defect on the medial cheek. The authors opted to repair this defect using a cervicofacial flap, a flap commonly utilized in plastic surgery and otolaryngology. 
This flap was designed with a superior lateral extension above the lateral canthus extended through the preauricular cheek and onto the neck. The flap was elevated above the level of the smas and extensively undermined medially and inferiorly. A periosteal tacking suture was placed in the left infraorbital rim to prevent pull on the free margin. The cervical facial flap was a random pattern flap commonly used for large cheek defects. Undermining can be performed either above or below the platysma. Undermining above the platysma minimizes risk of injury to nerves in the vasculature. This flap allows for coverage of large cheek defects with much of the scar, scar line hidden along the hairline and the neck. It is important to place periosteal tacking sutures in the temple or superior zygoma to prevent extropion formation. In my experience, these flaps usually do really well. I recommend to mess in anesthesia when performing a flap of this size because it both optimizes pain control and hemostasis. This is Christy Regula reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, reconstruction of a large columnar defect by first author Aranda Garcia Haraz and senior author Carlos Terina Botella. This case is a 44-year-old male with a cratoacanthoma of the columella. The defect after the first stage of resection measured 3.8 by 2 centimeters involving the columella, nasal tip, both nostrils, and a fragment of the underlying cartilage. In this case, a metalabial transposition flap was used for repair. The flap was designed with a superior pedicle drawn from the nasal border to the end of the metalabial sulcus, ending one centimeter above the mandibular border. The medial aspect of the flap was placed in the metalabial sulcus. The flap was elevated and sutured to the nasal tip and columella. The secondary defect was closed primarily. Three weeks after the first reconstruction, the flap was thinned and reapproximated. Three weeks after that, a final stage was performed to divide and inset the flap. Please see the article for photos. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, reconstruction of medial canthus defect involving nasal root, nasal sidewall, and upper and lower eyelids by first author Perry Hooper and senior author Ali Khan Samani. The authors described the repair of a 2.5 by 1.5 centimeter defect involving the medial canthus, upper and lower eyelid, nasal root, and nasal sidewall following three stages of Mohs for a basal cell carcinoma. For this challenging defect, the authors used two rhombic flaps. First, a laterally based inferior rhombic flap was transposed into the inferior portion of the defect. After the key suture was placed, a tacking suture was placed into the periosteum to secure the flap and restore concavity while reducing the risk of webbing and pin cushion. The remaining portion of the defect was repaired with a laterally based superior rhombic flap. This flap was designed to recruit tissue from the upper eyelid. The decision to base this flap laterally was due to the tissue laxity and similar color, texture, and thickness of donor and recipient sites. Preoperative and intraoperative dynamic assessment by eyebrow elevation showed preserved eyelid opening and closure. The result at six months can be seen in figure three of the article. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication, sebaceous carcinoma of the scalp masquerading as a pilar cyst. First author, Ramiz Hamid. Senior author, Jessica Savas. The case involved a 64-year-old woman with no significant history who presented to clinic for evaluation of a scalp mass. The painless lesion was present for three months and had slow growth. 
Examination revealed a firm pink nodule on the occipital scalp measuring four centimeters in diameter. At the time of her surgical appointment eight months later, the lesion had increased in size to five centimeters. The nodule was excised and the histopathologic features were consistent with sebaceous carcinoma. Given the diagnosis and association with Miratore syndrome, which is a variant of Lynch syndrome, immunohistochemistry for mismatch repair proteins was performed. The tumor demonstrated loss of MLH1 and PMS2 with positive adipophilin staining, consistent with the diagnosis of sebaceous carcinoma. The patient returned for Mohs at the excision site three weeks after an initial procedure. There was no residual sebaceous carcinoma at the margins on frozen section evaluation. The patient was sent for genetic testing given the immunohistochemical findings, was found to be low risk for Miratore syndrome. However, genetic testing on the tumor and the germline were not performed due to lack of insurance. Immunohistochemical testing for mismatch repair proteins offers only moderate sensitivity and low specificity compared with genetic testing, which is considered the gold standard for diagnosis of Miratore syndrome. Confirmation of a Miratore syndrome diagnosis is important as sebaceous neoplasms may be a herald for visceral cancers, such as GI or general urinary cancers. This case highlights a rare presentation of sebaceous carcinoma as a cyst-like nodule on the scalp. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication histopathologic evaluation of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma debulk specimens before Mohs micrographic surgery and its influence on squamous cell carcinoma staging by authors Jens Eikhoff and Yahao Shu. This was an analysis of patients who had Mohs for cutaneous SEC with the central tumor debulked and sent for permanent analysis at the author's institution from 2016 until 2020. Out of over 1,000 patients with SECs treated with Mohs, only 29 cases had the central debulk specimen submitted for vertical permanent sections. The inclusion criteria that the authors used to send the tumor for permanent debulk analysis included exophytic ulcerated or indurated tumors that were over two centimeters or on the ear or lip, or tumors that were poorly differentiated. Of the 29 tumors, 17 or 59% were upstaged on the debulk specimen using the Brigham's and women's scaling system, and 19 or 66% were upstaged by AGCC8. Overall, this series highlights the, the high rate of upstaging and usefulness of analyzing the central debulk tumor for high-risk SECs. As this study only analyzed the debulks of SECs that were already known to be high-risk based on pathology or clinical features, it would be interesting for more studies to investigate the importance of analyzing the debulk specimens for less obviously high-risk SECs. Additionally, the debulk specimens in this study were processed permanently, but I think that it is also useful to process the debulk frozen so that the Mohs surgeon can evaluate the tumor and make management decisions with the patient. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the communication treatment algorithm for basal cell carcinoma of the external auditory canal by first author Kula Svidzinski and senior author David Shokan. Tumors within the concha within one centimeter of the external auditory canal or EAC are considered malignancies intrinsic to the EAC. Basal cell carcinomas of the EAC are rare, accounting for 5 to 10% of malignant EAC neoplasms. 
The authors of this article combine their experiences with a review of the literature to propose a stepwise multidisciplinary approach to assessing and managing these tumors. When a patient presents with a basal cell carcinoma of the EAC, cranial nerve involvement should be assessed and any functional impairment should be attributed to tumor invasion until proven otherwise. Further ENT consultation is recommended for binocular microscopic evaluation and baseline audiologic exam. CT or MRI with contrast of the temporal bone and skull base is recommended to characterize the anatomy of deeply infiltrating tumors. Surgery is considered first-line therapy. ENT interventions include conventional sleeve or in-block lateral temporal bone resection, followed by reconstruction of the EAC. The authors of this article propose most surgery as the ideal treatment for extrinsic BCCs, which are those located greater than one centimeter from the auditory meatus. The most common and feared postoperative complication is EAC stenosis. The authors recommend consultation with ENT for any surgical defect within one to two millimeters of the meatus for repair to minimize the risk of stenosis and conductive hearing loss. Immediately after most of the EAC, dermatologic surgeons should pack the ear to help maintain patency, and a variety of materials can be used to do this. And I would refer the listeners to the article for those specific materials. Overall, I thought this article was a nice first step in creating a standardized approach to basal cell carcinomas of the EAC. This is Christy Regula, reviewing efficacy of liposomal bupivacaine for pain control following large, complex Mohs resections, a matched cohort study, by first author Michael Chang and senior author Chrysalyn Smoltz. Postoperative pain after Mohs surgery can be significant after extensive complex resections. Managing postoperative pain is critical for reducing patient anxiety and increasing likelihood of pursuing subsequent surgical treatments. To decrease postoperative pain in Mohs surgery patients at risk for moderate to high pain, the author's institution implemented a protocol for administering liposomal bupivacaine at the conclusion of large Mohs resections. Liposomal bupivacaine is a formulation of bupivacaine designed to provide prolonged duration of action of up to 72 hours without increased toxicity. It has been shown to reduce pain and improve early mobility after joint replacement and other surgeries. This study is a matched cohort study evaluating patients presenting for large or complex Mohs surgery, which was defined as greater than four centimeters in diameter, depth to the muscle or beyond, anogenital location, and clinical or radiologic evidence of perineural invasion. Liposomal bupivacaine was administered to the wound bed and surrounding skin immediately before or after reconstruction at the discretion of the Mohs surgeon. Patients were asked to record and report their baseline pain using the visual analog scale at baseline, postoperative day one, three, and seven, and to also record their postoperative analgesic use. Comparing the control and liposomal bupivacaine groups, the mean pain scores were similar at post-op day 0, 1, and 7. However, on post-op day 3, the mean pain score was 1.6 times higher in the control group. Baseline opiate use for chronic pain and perioperative surgical pain relief were similar between the two groups and no significant differences were observed between groups in requirement for postoperative oral pain medication. 
The significance of this reduced pain score at postoperative day three may be significant for patient care, and further studies will be useful in determining if this is so. This segment of the episode features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing the original article, Enhancing Skin Uptake of Topical Antioxidants with 1440 Non-Ablative Fractional Diode Laser Pretreatment by first author Jordan Wang and lead author Roy Geronimus. The authors begin by pointing out that optimal uptake of topical antioxidants is a challenge because of the structure of the stratum corneum limiting uptake of larger, less lipophilic molecules. And they point out that in vitro studies, at least, demonstrate that non-ablative lasers decrease skin resistance, which makes the skin more permeable to hydrophilic molecules. So this was an ex vivo analysis where they looked to see if a particular non-ablative laser this was a 1440 diode with the name brand Clear and Brilliant, enhanced the uptake, permeation, and retention of three common antioxidant topicals, and the ones they chose were CE ferulic, which is 15% ascorbic acid, Floritin CF, which is 10% C, and Phyto Plus, which is a botanical product, all from SkinCeuticals. When they looked at the uptake compared to untreated controls, all products had enhanced uptake with laser treatment. The highest was seen with the 10% vitamin C, also very high at 10%, 10 times with the 15% vitamin C and six times greater uptake with the botanical product, which they hypothesized to be because the botanical product contained some larger size molecules. So in their discussion, they review that lasers, including this one, 1440 nanometer non-ablative diode, can increase permeation of topical products. And they say that in their practice, they, within 15 minutes of laser treatment, apply topical products. They do point out that there are a couple of reports of granulominous reactions from topical products containing vitamin C. They believe that this was not the vitamin C, but some other ingredient like a stabilizer or emulsifier. They point out that the laser tissue interaction is critical to the laser-induced channel characteristics so that you may want to choose your laser and your wit and your parameters in a setting that optimizes absorption. They conclude by saying their findings support that non-ablative fractional diode lasers can enhance topical uptake, even though they're non-ablative, of topical antioxidants. This is Isabella Jones reviewing Enhanced Uptake and Retention of 0.03% Bimatoprost, 0.5% Fifluorouracil, and 5% Minoxidil following 1550 nanometer or 1927 nanometer non-ablative laser pretreatment by Wang and Geronimus. The goal of the study was to analyze transdermal uptake of three topicals after non-ablative fractional laser. Human donor abdominal tissue was pre-treated with a non-ablative fractional laser followed by application of bimatoprost, 5-fluorouracil, and 5% minoxidil. The authors describe in detail the methods of tissue preparation and measurement of uptake. For bimatoprost, the skin was treated with a 1927 nanometer thulium fiber laser 
at 5 watts and 5 millijoules. They found an increased uptake of four times over control and increased retention of four times over control at 24 hours. For 5-FU and 5% minoxidil, they pre-treated the skin with the 1550 nanometer erbium glass laser at 30 watts and 10 millijoules. They saw an increased uptake of 5-FU by 20 times over control and retention of three times at 24 hours. For 5% minoxidil, they found a 1.2 times increase in uptake. Retention remained the same at 90 minutes. Overall, laser pretreatment increased both permeation and retention. However, permeation of 0.03% bimatoprost was not detected beyond the skin graft. The authors argued that the results here can guide the development of treatment protocols for clinical use of non-ablative fractional laser pretreatment to enhance the uptake of these topical therapeutics that are used for conditions like vitiligo, androgenetic alopecia, and non-melanoma skin cancer. This is Isabella Jones reviewing a randomized clinical trial comparing the efficacy and safety of radiofrequency microneedling versus non-ablative fractional 1550 nanometer erbium glass laser for the rejuvenation of the neck by Al Mukhtar and Bowen. This is the first head-to-head -head trial comparing RF microneedling with 1550 nanometer fraxel for neck rejuvenation. In this single-center randomized investigator-blinded trial, 21 female patients with mild to moderate neck wrinkling laxity were randomized to receive either RF microneedling or non-ablative fractional laser with three treatments four weeks apart. Most patients risk in types two and three. For the 1550 ambient glass, patients were treated with eight passes at 25 to 35 millijoules, treatment levels six to seven. For the intracell RF microneedling device, three passes were done at 1.5.8 and 0.5 millimeters on a treatment level of five with a bipolar setting. Assessments were conducted four and 12 weeks after the last treatment. At 12 weeks post-treatment, they found that subjects in the fractional group had about 41 to 42% improvement in the blinded investigator Fitzpatrick-Goldman wrinkling and elastosis scores, which was significantly better than the 8 to 16% observed for RF microneedling. The, the fractional group also had better subject satisfaction. However, when horizontal neck wrinkle severity scores were assessed, the RF microneedling group resulted in a significant decrease corresponding to 38% versus only 28% in the fractional group. There was slightly less downtime for the fractional group than the RF microneedling group, but both lasers were well tolerated. The authors review prior studies on RF microneedling and non-ablative fractional laser and point to one that showed better improvement in atrophic acne scar severity with the non-ablative fractional laser. They hope this study can guide physicians in picking the best modalities for neck rejuvenation. Hi, this is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing adverse events 
of non-invasive body contouring analysis of the FDA Mao database by first author Christopher Nguyen and last author Michael Gold. So the authors searched the Mao database between 2011 and 2021 for devices pertaining to non-invasive body contouring and they found a total of 1,325 medical device reports or MDRs. The most commonly reported MDRs were radiofrequency related devices and secondly cryolipolysis. So for cryolipolysis, 75% of these reports were due to paradoxical adipose hyperplasia the number one location was abdomen followed by flank, back. And the second most common adverse event following cryolipolysis in this database was hernia. And half of these hernias were new followed by cryolipolysis and half were exacerbation of existing hernias. The umbilical hernia was the most common area affected and some actually required surgical intervention, which is interesting as hernia is a contraindication to cryolipolysis. For radiofrequency, 604 AEs were reported. Most common area was the face, followed by the neck. And the AEs reported were burn um, in 60% and other applicator tip malfunctions. There were 62 MDRs related to the 1060 nanometer diode laser, which is used for fat reduction. And the most common are nodules, burns, and blisters in severe pain. For HIFU, the most commonly reported was unintentional fat loss and uh, nerve pain. And there's very few uh, reports for the high intensity focus electromagnetic field. This is relatively new. So the authors gathered from this data that they thought it was interesting that paradoxical adipose hyperplasia was so commonly reported followed by cryolipolysis. And perhaps this is uh, underreported. In a recent study, one in 2,000 cycles, you may develop the paradoxical adipose hyperplasia. I thought this was a great review, especially if you're using these body contouring devices to know what to look out for, um, especially like for cryolipolysis, don't treat in areas of hernias or in, in lax tissue, such as surgical scars, because you can definitely induce a hernia possibly or exacerbate a hernia. So please check this article out if you are using any of these devices. This is Ashley Decker and I'm reviewing the original investigation plume generated by different electrosurgical techniques and in vitro experiment on human skin by first author Alexandria Rappel and senior author Dr. Carl Schombacher. Techniques for tissue destruction and hemostasis in derm surgery include electrofulguration, electrodesiccation, electrocoagulation, and electrocautery. Surgical smoke or plume is generated by any of these aforementioned methods and consists of 95% steam and 5% particulate matter. The particulate matter generated contains carcinogenic and possibly mutagenic components, including cyanide and butadiene, which are compounds found in cigarette smoke and linked to cardiovascular risk. The plume produced from monopolar diathermy in a plastic surgery setting has been reported to be the equivalent of smoking 27 to 30 cigarettes per day. In this study, the authors compared the particulate concentration generated by electrofulguration, electrodesiccation, monopolar coagulation, 
coagulation, bipolar coagulation, and electrocautery. These techniques were tested on human tissue samples in a closed chamber. A particle counter at a fixed point 20 centimeters away from the sample recorded the concentration of aerosolized particles generated over seven particle sizes ranging from 0.3 microns to 10 microns. The size of the aerosolized particles in the plume determines where they are deposited within the respiratory system with smaller particles traveling further. The greatest concentration of particles were produced by monopolar electrocoagulation followed by electrocautery, electrodesiccation, electrofulguration, and bipolar electrocoagulation for all particle sizes. Bipolar electrocoagulation outperformed all other devices in particulate, in particulate matter. In terms of personal protective equipment, the average surgical mask filters particles greater than five microns, meaning much of the particulate matter is still getting through. High efficiency particulate air respirators, including the N95 respirators, are, are preferred in the surgical setting because of their ability to filter 95% of airborne particles 0.3 microns or larger. Smoke evacuators with HEPA filters are also capable of removing ultrafine particulate matter. I think this is an interesting article. Um, reducing occupational exposure is extremely important. I have recently started wearing an N95 during all closures or situations where I anticipate the need for significant hemostasis. And I will also consider expanding the role for bipolar electrocautery in my practice outside of my normal routine of just using it on patients who have ICDs or pacemakers. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original investigation, an open-label prospective pilot study of hypertonic saline for hydradenitis superativa by first author Martina Porter and senior author Alexa Kimball. Hypertonic saline for sclerotherapy is used off-label to treat reticular and small varicose veins. Hypertonic saline, up to 23.4%, acts as a sclerosin, denaturing cell surface proteins and leading to vein collapse and closure. The authors of this study performed a non-randomized trial to determine whether this mechanism of action could similarly disrupt hydradenitis superativa or HS fistula epithelial linings with subsequent wound healing. Hypertonic saline 23.4% and up to 0.4 mLs was injected every two weeks until fistula closure or a maximum of three injections was reached. The initial study design included a control arm, but an inability to identify comparable HS fistulas in separate, similar anatomic locations within individual patients precluded this. With regard to injection technique, 30-gauge needles of varying lengths were used to probe each fistula. Hypertonic saline was then injected slowly until one of the following endpoints was reached. The total of 0.4 ml injection was completed. Significant pain or stinging was reported by the subject, or significant back pressure on the syringe was identified by the investigator. The primary efficacy endpoints were physician assessment of HS fistula characteristics at final visit versus baseline visit, and overall change in HS fistula based on the HS PHIA over the course of the study. Additional secondary endpoints included changes in patient-reported outcomes, including patient-assessed improvement of overall clinical state, fistula characteristics, and dermatology quality of life index, or DLQI. Safety and tolerability were assessed using a NRS pain and stinging scale completed by the patients. 17 subjects completed the study. Statistically significant differences in baseline to final physician assessment of the fistula included amount of drainage, erythema, intensity, and swelling.
physician-assessed overall HS improvement was significant between visits two and three, but not between the other visit intervals. Patient-rated overall HS improvement of the treated lesion demonstrated statistically significant improvement between visits two and three and visit two and final visit. Significant difference in average DLQI score were observed between baseline and each subsequent visit. Overall HTS injections or hypertonic saline injections were well tolerated. A maximum of 0.4 ml was used per injection and the level of pain and stinging did not appear to change significantly based on the amount of hypertonic saline used. My takeaway from the study is that serial hypertonic saline injections appear to be a tolerable and effective method for treating HS fistulas. And I look forward to seeing more data on this topic. This is Deirdre Hooper, and this is the review article, Polydocanol, a review of off-label dermatologic uses by Kwok Bowen and Suranya Silipant. Polydocanol is a non-ionic detergent sclerosis, sclerosant that absorbs to and disrupts the architecture of phospholipid membranes. And at low concentrations, polydocanol produces a negative charge on the external surface of cell membranes that stimulates coagulation and ultimately thrombotic occlusion at the site and effective obliteration of the lumen. The authors do a good job reviewing dermatologic applications of polydocanol as well as their efficacy and potential complications. Importantly, much of the literature is case reports or very small case series, so it is therefore difficult to rate the strength of this data. But this is an interesting article to look up if you have some challenging conditions that you want to try an off-label use. On label, a liquid preparation of polydocanol is distributed as a sclera and available at 0.5 and 1% solutions. You can get polydocanol from compounding pharmacies, but be cautioned because studies have shown compounded sclerosants to have unreliable potency and purity. Off-label uses reported and reviewed in this review include with 3% polydocanol, mucosyl of the salivary gland, upper extremity veins, lymphangioma circumscriptum, digital mucus cyst, glomovenous malformations, and acne cysts. At lower concentrations, like 1% to 2%, so still at a higher level, lymphorrhea postoperatively and dissecting cellulitis are reported. At on-label concentrations, hemangiomas, facial veins, reticular veins of the chest, pyogenic granuloma, mixed skin ulcers, postoperative seromas, and acne cysts have all been reported to be successfully treated with polydocanol. Importantly, in the hemangioma papers, there was a patient who had permanent loss of vision after treatment of an upper facial hemangioma. In the facial veins treatments, there were some reports of ulceration. And in these conditions where we have better treatments, potentially this is not your optimal treatment. But the authors conclude by reminding us that although polydocanol is currently only FDA approved for incompetent veins, it has been selected for a variety of off-label clinical applications, and this is a nice resource for some challenging conditions. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing Large Varicose Vein Closure, a comprehensive review by Dr. Rawa Elmakar and Mitch Goldman. So 
When evaluating for venous disease in the lower leg, it is important to check the great saphenous vein, which we usually do in clinic with an ultrasound. You can send it out as well to check valvular incompetence in this great saphenous vein, as this can lead to distal hypertension, possible DVTs, and ulceration as sequela. In the past, the great saphenous vein incompetence had to be treated by actually stripping this vein, but now there are many non-invasive techniques, and these were reviewed in this article. So the first one reviewed was a polydocanal 1% foam. This uses detergent to destroy the vein through sclerosis. Um, and the polydocanal 1% foam is a technology that produces a low nitrogen microfoam via device that is injected into the great saphenous vein via an ultrasound machine. The efficacy was proven in vanished phase three trials, and one of the trials showed an 80% success in the 1% polydocanal group. Another method uses a glue, it's called cyoacrylate adhesive. It is for permanent closure of the great saphenous vein. The cryoacrylate is delivered via catheter to encapsulate the vein and induce vein fibrosis. This actually had a surprisingly 99 to 100% success rate, but there were some superficial infections that were noted. So the gold standard and one you see most commonly in the literature is endovenous thermoablation, um, which uses thermal energy to destroy the great saphenous vein. There are two main ways to deliver this energy, and this is through endovenous laser therapy and radiofrequency ablation. Both can be used um, use ultrasound to guide the laser either uh, via catheter into the great saphenous vein. These have very high success rates um, and 90% to 100 ablation of the great saphenous vein is done under local anesthesia. Uh, it's a very comfortable procedure, much better than the previous surgical stripping. In the author's experience, they advocate for the radiofrequency ablation and the endovenous thermal ablation with a 1320 laser is the most successful. And I know Dr. Goldman uses this routinely in clinic to treat great saphenous vein incompetence. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, Sclerotherapy and Aesthetic Medicine, Myths and Realities. First author, Annie Liu, senior author, Mitch Goldman. Sclerotherapy is commonly performed for elimination of reticular and telangiectatic leg veins. Telangiectasias are veins smaller than one millimeter and reticular veins are one to four millimeters in diameter. The aim of the review was to critically examine the myths of sclerotherapy for aesthetic indications using evidence from the literature. Myth one, sclerotherapy is only for use in lower legs. Sclerotherapy, in fact, can be safely used to treat veins in other areas as well, with the exception of the face. Studies support strong efficacy in treating reticular hand veins, and there are smaller case studies citing efficacy of treating reticular veins on the chest as well. Myth two, sclerotherapy can be used safely to treat veins on the face. In fact, the literature does not support use of sclerotherapy on the face due to potential side effects such as skin necrosis and vision loss. Myth three, laser therapy is superior to sclerotherapy for treatment of veins on the lower extremities. A prospective randomized open-label trial comparing the efficacy of polydocanol sclerotherapy versus long-pulse NDAG for leg telangiectasias 
found successful treatment and similar patient satisfaction is achieved by both therapies. Some studies suggest faster improvement and less pain in the sclerotherapy group than the laser group, while other studies show a combination of laser and sclerotherapy may be more effective than sclerotherapy alone. Myth four, wearing compression stockings does not make a difference after sclerotherapy. Rather, studies have shown a strong correlation between the length of time compression is applied and the degree of clinical improvement and reduction in post-sclerotherapy hyperpigmentation. In the author's clinic, graduated compression stocking use is advised to be worn 24 hours a day, including in the showers and sleeping, for one week post-sclerotherapy with good safety and efficacy. Myth 5. Detergent sclerotherapy agents are equivalent. The two main detergent agents are polydocanol and sodium tetradecyl sulfide. Some studies have shown better efficacy and less side effects with polydocanol, while others show equivalency. Myth 6. Touch-up treatments post-sclerotherapy can be performed as early as one month post-treatment. Complete absorptions of the treated veins can take up to three to four months. Touch-up treatments should wait at least two months because during that time, the injected veins are still inflamed. Myth seven, the size and type of the syringe does not affect foam sclerotherapy. Foam sclerotherapy involves the use of two plastic syringes and a two or three-way valve through which the mixture is pushed back and forth 10 times. Studies show larger syringes lead to more unstable foam. The authors use a 3 and 5 cc syringe with a female to female adapter to mix 1 cc of solution with 4 cc's of air. The 3 cc syringe is used to inject the solution into the vein with a 5 cc syringe used to mix in the 4 cc's of room air. Myth 8. Foam sclerotherapy has a high risk of air embolus. There is a concern that foam sclerotherapy may lead to the development of air embolus particularly in patients with a patent foramen of valley. In the author's clinic, 30,000 procedures using foam sclerotherapy led to no air emboli noted. They do limit, however, the amount of foam sclerotherapy used per session to no more than 7.5 cc's of sclerosin. Myth nine, sclerotherapy causes a hypercoagulable state. The current literature refutes the claim that sclerotherapy results in a hypercoagulable state. And finally, myth 10, you can treat the telangiectatic veins and not the reticular veins and get a good result. The superficial veins are all connected, such as roots of a tree. The smaller telangiectasias cannot be treated effectively without addressing the larger feeding reticular vein. By starting with injections into the larger reticular veins, one can see the solution entering the telangiectasias that they feed into. In conclusion, many aspects of sclerotherapy have existing evidence to dictate the best clinical practice. This is Ashley Decker and I'm reviewing the article, Is the Technology Era Aging You? A Review of the Physiologic and Psychological Toll of Technology Used by first author Jacqueline McKessie and senior author Sabrina Fabi. Use of technology, including cell phones and internet, is at an all-time high with internet addiction affecting up to one-third of young adults. This review article focused on the impact of psychological and physiological health of technology, specifically addressing electromagnetic radiation, posture and mobility, sleep disturbances, and psychological stress and well-being.
Electromagnetic radiation is radiation of different wavelengths ranging from 100 kilohertz to 300 gigahertz and is emitted by various light sources. Electromagnetic energy can be subdivided into ionizing and non-ionizing categories with ionizing radiation more closely linked to cancer and adverse effects. At this time, evidence is inconclusive regarding the effects of radio frequency on our bodies. However, in vitro studies have shown radio frequency may lead to premature aging of the skin due to alterations in the stress of epidermal and dermal cells. In addition, in 2011, the World Health Organization classified radio frequency as a possible carcinogen because of its potential role in tumor genesis. Visible light and infrared radiation from our devices theoretically could also lead to pigment alteration, but studies up to this point have been inconclusive. Interestingly enough, broad-spectrum sunscreens do not block out visible light. However, tinted sunscreens may contain iron oxide, and these do protect against the visible light. Use of devices can lead to increased development of horizontal necklines, or tech neck. Tech neck is becoming increasingly common, even amongst our young patients. The negative impact of devices on sleep is also well documented. Poor sleep can lead to worse skin barrier function, increased signs of aging, and worse perceptions of attractiveness. It can also lead to effects on diet, cognitive function, immune health, and overall longevity. Social media can also adversely affect mental health, leading to an increase in stress. Activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal cortical axis increases cortisol and epinephrine, amongst other hormones, that can lead to increased wrinkles, dispigmentation, and impaired immune function. There's also significant psychological ramifications from internet and social media use, such as depression, anxiety, and body dysmorphia. Overall, the most significant impact of device use at this point is on our mental health and sleep with limited data on the physiological impact of electromagnetic radiation. However, this could also be due to the inability to conduct standardized trials due to innumerable confounding factors. But this article does highlight the importance of limiting time spent on devices for both children and for adults. I invite readers who are interested to take a closer look at the article and they do contain some interesting tables. This is Isabella Jones reviewing long-term follow-up for 1064 nanometer nanosecond and picosecond laser treatment of acquired bilateral nevus of oda-like macules. This condition presents as blue-brown macules on the bilateral cheeks and is most common in middle-aged Asian women. In this case series, the authors followed five patients with this condition from a previous study, where they were treated with nanosecond and picosecond 1064 nanometer laser. The authors noted further significant clearance of lesions at nine months after both nanosecond and picosecond laser treatment. Based on the study's findings, the authors state that the treatment interval of one to six months used in current practice may be too brief and add no therapeutic benefit to pigment clearance. Extending the treatment interval or waiting for lesions to reach their plateau of clearance may be performed before initiating subsequent treatments. This may allow enough time for both adequate pigment clearance and complete resolution of any pigmentary side effects. This is Isabella Jones reviewing Safety and Effectiveness of Low-Density 1927 Nanometer Fractional Thulium Fiber Laser 
for hyperpigmented scar treatment in Fitzpatrick's skin types 2 through 5 by Wong and Geronimus. This retrospective chart review was performed at a private practice dermatology clinic over a 3.7 year period. They included 29 patients with hyperpigmented scars who received treatment with the low density 1927 nm fractional thulium fiber laser and had photography available. Patients received anywhere between 1 to 15 treatments and the mean follow-up time was 1.7 months. About 90% of patients had excellent to good improvement and no patients worsened. The authors state that this laser seems to be safe and effective in the clinical improvement of hyperpigmented scars in Fitzpatrick's fin types 2 through 5. This is Monica Bowen. I'll be reviewing use of Erbium YAG laser for steatocystoma extirpation in darker skin by first author Alyssa Quinn and last author Darren Foman. So steatocystoma multiplex is a rare skin disorder consisting of benign sebum-filled cysts in the dermis, most commonly on the trunk. They can be sporadic or due to a keratin-17 mutation. So in this case report, a 45-year-old uh, male, Fitzpatrick skin type 5, was treated with an erbium lag YAG laser for several steatocystoma multiplex uh, cysts on the abdomen. Unfortunately, the device manufacturer was not listed. The settings of the erbium were a 2-millimeter spot size, fluence of 25 joules, and a 100-micron ablative depth with the goal to do as many passes as required to reach the dermal layer of the cyst, and then a curette was used to extirpate the cyst and its contents and capsule. At one and three month follow-up, there was no dyschromia. However, the efficacy of the procedure was not mentioned. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing Mycobacterium avium intracellular complex infection complicating cosmetic filler injection by Nicole Goldbari and Eve Lobenstein. So this was the first reported case of a slow-growing mycobacterium avium intracellular complex or MAC infection directly linked to cosmetic filler injection. The patient was a 57-year-old immunocompetent woman who presented with tender violaceous plaques and nodules on bilateral cheeks with a low-grade fever after being injected with a filler in the Dominican Republic. She was started on IV vancomycin and discharged on erythromycin, ciprofloxacin, and sertirazine. However, eight days later, the lesions worsened and a biopsy and tissue culture were performed. The special stain right away did not grow anything. However, the tissue culture eight days later grew MAC. ID was consulted and patient was started on rifampin, ethambutol, and azithromycins and lesions resolved after two months of therapy. Of note, previous filler-associated mycobacteria infections were rapidly growing mycobacterium like M. Chelone. I think this is a good report just to keep on mind um, if patients present with this uh, after filler. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing the case report. Hyaluronidase is a successful treatment modality for scleroderma-induced microstomia by first author Devia Chopra and lead author Brian Morrison. The authors start by pointing out that scleroderma is characterized by excess extracellular matrix production 
including hyaluronic acid, and that native hyaluronidase has decreased in systemic sclerosis. So we see microstomia in these people, an abnormally reduced oral aperture as the most common oral facial manifestation affecting approximately 30% of patients. And this causes both functional impairment and cosmetic changes and worsens quality of life. They report a patient who was on multiple immunosuppressive medicines for her scleroderma, which had not improved her microstomia, in which case they administered one ml of Hylinex, recombinant human hyaluronidase, in small aliquots around the perioral area. And at three months, the patient returned to clinic with marked improvement, which was sustained through six months. She had an 11% increase in her oral aperture and was very pleased with her results. The authors point out that hyaluronidase is inexpensive, easy to administer, and already commonly found in dermatology clinics. They detail in their case report their dose, volume, and injection techniques to guide future injectors for these cases. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing a case report, partial vulvectomy combined with bipolar radiofrequency ablation to prevent recurrence in vulvar lymphangioma by first author Ria Ahuja and lead author Somesh Gupta. The authors begin by reviewing that surgical excision alone may have an undesirable functional and cosmetic outcome for lymphangioma circumscriptum of the vulva and point out that furthermore, surgery often fails to remove deeper cisterns portending a recurrence risk. So the case report highlights a combination of surgical excision and same time bipolar radiofrequency ablation of deeper cisterns for the treatment of vulvar lymphangioma with a cosmetically and functionally satisfying outcome in an 18-year-old patient with a long-standing lymphangioma of the labia with continuous watery discharge. There are videos available I would refer you to, but in brief, the authors did an elliptical excision to debulk the superficial part of the lesion and then used a bipolar coagulation mode with their KLS Martin Maximum electrosurgery machine. And they used that for direct visualization and ablation of the deeper cisterns. The patient did very well and was only having minimal soakage of pads after almost a year. This did increase mildly after a year, and the authors performed a single session of intralesional radiofrequency ablation, and the patient is now doing well two years out. So they point out that using the bipolar radiofrequency probe allows them to ablate deeper cisterns, reducing the chances of recurrence, and that direct visualization helped us to more easily target the lymphatic channels, reducing the cumulative energy delivered and reducing the chances of collateral damage and scarring. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication, a hole in the head, an intradiploic epidermoid cyst with calvarial defect. Intradiploic epidermoid cysts are a rare variety of epidermoid cysts that originate inside the skull and connect the intracranial space to the overlying skin. This case exemplifies an attempted surgical excision of an epidermoid cyst in the author's clinic that was complicated by the intraoperative recognition of its intracranial extension. 
A healthy 21-year-old man reported an enlarging mass on the left parietal scalp, present since age 8. It had previously been excised by an outside dermatologist, and the patient was told it was a benign cyst. After excision, the surgical site accumulated fluid, which the outside dermatologist drained multiple times. When the patient presented to the author's clinic two months later, there was a three-centimeter ill-defined fluctuant mass with an overlying scar on the left parietal scalp. Ultrasound was suggestive of a seroma, and needle aspiration was performed to drain the fluid. An excision was performed, and upon blunt probing, a defect in the calvarium was noted. The procedure was suspended, neurosurgery was contacted, and it was recommended to send to the patient to the emergency room for further evaluation and imaging. MRI and CT obtained in the ER revealed a transosseous lesion abutting the underlying dura with an overlying cutaneous draining tract. This is seen nicely in figure two, which was favored to represent a surgically manipulated intradiploic epidermoid cyst. The patient underwent complete resection of the lesion with neurosurgery through craniotomy with placement of a customized synthetic bone flap covering the calvarial defect. Epidermoid cysts represent fewer than 2% of all intracranial tumors, and of these, 90% are located in the intradural space beneath the calvarium, with the remainder located in the diploic space, which is the marrow-containing area within the bony calvarium. Ultrasound was unable to detect the calvarial defect, which highlights the need for additional imaging, such as CT or MRI, for conclusive diagnosis. Concerning features include congenital defects, midline or cranial suture line locations, lesions that feel tethered to the skull, palpable bony step-offs, the presence of clear fluid that may represent cerebrospinal fluid, or a history of head trauma in that area. The intradiploic variety may present in a dermatology clinic similarly to a cutaneous epidermoid cyst, so it's important for dermatologists and derm surgeons to be aware of existence. This is Christy Regula reviewing TikTok sheds light on tanning. Tanning is still popular and emerging trends pose new risk. By first author Elizabeth Cream and senior author Jeffrey Dover. Among young adults, melanoma is the third most common cause of cancer. Excessive UV light prior to the age of 30 is a well-established risk factor for both melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancer. As such, youth and young adults are an important target for public health efforts. In this study, the authors use a popular social media platform to determine the prevalence of content that either promotes or cautions against tanning and to determine trends in content. A total of 448 TikTok videos were analyzed. Over 90% of videos exhibited a positive attitude towards tanning. Tanners, tanning salons, and tanning salon employees created 88% of all content. Dermatologists and skin cancer survivors created only 4% of content. The most common trends noted in pro-tanning content included revealing tan lines, testing TikTok tanning oils, conveying tanning as a part of fitness and or weight loss lifestyle, applying stickers before tanning to create solar tattoos, tanning with friends, using melanotan, nasal spray, and or injections before tanning, and likening UV lights to a nightclub. Other trends were also discovered and described in more detail in the article. Overall, it is concerning that 90% of tanning videos on TikTok exhibit a positive attitude towards tanning, 
and it is a space where dermatologists are needed to combat misinformation and promote sun-safe practices. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the communication When Tanning is Trending, a content quality study of skin cancer on TikTok by first author Valerie Doyon and senior author Katie Belenze. In this communication, the authors looked at TikTok to determine the content that either promotes or cautions against tanning. Five of the top hashtags associated with tanning on TikTok TikTok were queried. The first 100 videos for each hashtag was included. Data was collected on the content creators, attitudes towards tanning, and any trends seen in two or more videos. A total of 488 videos were analyzed, with over 90% of these videos exhibiting a positive attitude towards tanning. Out of these videos, tanners, tanning salons, and tanning salon employees created 88% of all the content. Dermatologists and skin cancer survivors created only 4%. Over 85% of the individuals who posted pro-tanning content were non-Hispanic white females. This aligns with what we know about tanning bed usage. Overall, tanning bed usage has decreased since the World Health Organization recategorized tanning beds as group one carcinogens, but the decrease among non-Hispanic white females has shown a less significant decline. The trends identified included the addictive nature of tanning, beauty ideals, and purported health benefits of tanning. Given the known carcinogenic effects of tanning, it is alarming that over 90% of TikTok videos portrayed a positive attitude towards tanning. The authors point out the abundance of direct-to-consumer advertising by tanning salons and manufacturers of tanning products parallels the tobacco industry. It is imperative that we as the skin experts also occupy space on these platforms to educate the public and combat misinformation. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication, real-world experiences of patients with cellulite, implications for newer treatment modalities by authors Jordan Wang and Roy Geronimus. This was a survey study looking at people's experiences and perspectives on cellulite. 106 respondents completed the survey. 66% were female and the average age was 41. Cellulite affected social events for 60% of respondents and clothing options for 71%. 16% of respondents had previous treatments for cellulite, while almost half were planning to undergo treatment in the future. Of those that had already undergone treatments, the most common treatments included over-the-counter topicals, followed by prescription topicals, fillers, and chemical peels. The majority of respondents did not find these treatments effective. Overall, this study highlights that cellulite is a distressing issue for many people, and overall patients have been unsatisfied with the first-line treatments that they have tried, such as topical creams. The authors highlight that there have been many recent advancements in cellulite treatment, including injectable collagenase, or QUO, vacuum-assisted guided subcision, or selfina, 1440 nanometer ND YAG with side-firing fiber and temperature-sensing cannula, or cellulase, and more recently, a rapid acoustic pulse technology device, or Resonic. Future studies should evaluate these many different devices and modalities to determine which options have the most efficacy for various patients. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the original article, Squamous Cell Carcinoma with Bone Invasion, a Systematic Review and Pooled Survival Analysis by authors Emma Russell and Thomas Knackstead. The article starts by providing the background that bone invasion is a well-known poor prognostic factor for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, or SCC. This article is a systematic review and pooled analysis of cases of SCC with bone invasion in the literature, 
to assess which prognostic factors impact survival outcomes among this cohort. 76 cases of SEC with bone invasion from 49 articles met inclusion criteria. 61% of the cases had developed within a chronic ulcer, also known as Margolin's ulcer, and 26% were recurrent. The five-year overall survival rate was 66%, the disease-specific survival rate was 72%, and the five-year progression-free survival rate was 67%. Although recurrent tumors and tumors treated with chemo or radiation alone had worse outcomes in univariate analysis, only body location had significance in multivariate analysis. Tumors of the trunk and head and neck had worse progression-free survival than tumors of the extremities. The authors theorized that tumors on the extremities had better outcomes because many were treated via amputation. It is surprising that some factors, such as recurrence rate and treatment modality, did not maintain significance on multivariate analysis, but the authors theorized that this was due to confounding factors. Overall, the study highlights that bone invasion is indeed associated with very poor survival outcomes. One limitation of the study is that the data largely relied on case reports and small case series, but this is the nature of the current data landscape without any large prospective multicenter studies on this topic. It would be interesting to further explore why extremity tumors had better outcomes, and if due to amputation, would tumors on other body locations benefit from more aggressive surgical approaches as well. Thank you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles, author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com slash dermatologic surgery. To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit asds.net.